Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. We had several email come through that I didn't get to last week, so I'm going to kick off this week's show. Uh, We'll start with one that came in last week from David in Santa Cruz, or David from somewhere anyway. Uh, I don't actually have his location. Uh, David wants to talk about vaccine boosters and T-cell function. David's question, why is T-cell function mostly ignored when boosters are advertised? Uh, How many boosters are too many before T-cells start not working so well? First of all, David, I am unaware of any data whatsoever that shows that vaccinations reduce, or boosters for that matter, reduce T-cell activity, uh, particularly for viruses. Uh, I just don't think that's true. The question about why is it ignored when boosters are advertised? Well, part of the reason is we don't use T-cell function as our indicator for when to even decide to give boosters. Uh, We use the blood levels of antibodies, which tend to drop after about six months in the case of these vaccines. And also around the time that antibodies drop, case rates increase, although not necessarily hospitalizations. But at this point, the limits to the state of our art are that it's easy to measure antibodies and hard to measure T-cells. In order to measure T-cells, you actually have to grab tissue. That means taking out a lymph node or sticking a needle in one or taking a piece of skin. There are T-cells in your skin, of, of course. But going after body tissue is invasive and expensive compared to drawing blood, which is pretty easy. There's a lot of people around with that skill, and you can get the data fairly readily. So we've used antibodies because they're convenient. By the way, the T in T cells, that stands for thymus because the T cells originate, at least in human development, they originate in the thymus, which is sort of the mother of the immune system or the adaptive immune system anyway. And during the course of Late uh, gestation and also early childhood, early infancy in particular, the thymus is gigantic. Now, my thymus right now at my age in my 60s is probably the size of a walnut. But when you, there's a game, it's kind of one of those hazing rituals in medical school when you start doing pediatrics, almost always the attending will throw up an x ray, obviously an x ray of a baby and ask you for your diagnosis. And as a nascent medical student, you know, you look at it and go, oh, it looks like they've got bilateral pneumonia. Oh, my God, a baby with bilateral pneumonia. And the attending looks down their lofty nose at you and says, no, no, tut, tut, my child, that's the thymus. And your jaw drops, because if you even remember what they taught you about the thymus in preclinical years, you certainly didn't remember that it ever got that big. And by now you've been through anatomy and you you couldn't find the thymus. So the fact that it's so large indicates how important it is. And what the body does is it essentially teaches the, th- the T-cells what not to attack. That is to say, hmm, that's, my, that's me, please do not attack that. Or, hmm, that's an invader. You're, you can go and attack that. And so the T-cells actually get trained over the first year of life. Meanwhile, for the first three months, uh, the breast, the IgG that they got before birth, that baby got through the placenta, is still active and still protecting them. And as that starts to decline, their own immune system wakes up enough to start to be able to produce some antibodies. And again, the first vaccinations are given for like hepatitis B at, you know, in the neonatal period, I do not think that is a wise move. I think that's a public health move, but in terms of whether it's the best time to do it, no, it's not. It's a practical time to do it because you have the baby there. And hepatitis B causes, among other things, cancer of the liver 30 years later. And it's a really nasty 
disease and it's passed congenitally. So let's get back to David's question. I know I'm digressing, but hey, I can. How many boosters? Uh, it, boosters do not affect the functioning of the T cells. It, I'm aware, unaware of any data that suppresses it. I want to talk a little bit about the fact that the T cells are lurkers and they're in all the tissues where you would expect them to encounter bacteria and they're a big part of the first line defense. They also, but they primarily fight viruses and cancer. And what fights bacteria are the B cells and the plasma cells. And these are the ones that become trained, essentially, through the mediation, I might add, of two other immune cells. So it's a very dynamic process. Uh, Essentially, you have these macrophages that are big uh, amoebas. They eat the the bacteria or whatever it is that's invading, chop it up into little pieces, actually display those little pieces on their surface along with a a calling card that summons T-cells. The T-cells then come and taste or identify or however you want to call it. I think I like to think of it smelling. I think of them as bloodhounds, but it smells uh, that unique pattern that is the pattern of that bacteria or one of the patterns, I should say, of that bacteria and learns how to see it. And once the T cell has learned that, it's able to assist with training the B cells, stimulating the B cells essentially to become memory B cells. And they then hold in their memory uh, all the information needed to make more antibodies. The plasma cells wander around in the bloodstream. The memory B cells go go back and kind of doze in the lymph nodes. But the plasma cells just are putting out a low level of those antibodies, if those antibodies ever get used, it sends a big alarm signal through the system and you start dividing those memory B cells and kicking them out as plasma cells to go and do the job of pumping out antibodies. So how do antibodies work anyway? Well, they grab onto things. And we're going to be talking in just a moment about some monoclonal antibodies that are actually available to fight covid as a preventative, not as a treatment. So we'll talk about that in just a moment, but I just have to give you a movie tip, all right? And I know, right? It's uh, an old, old movie from the 60s that has Raquel Welsh in it, and it's called Fantastic Voyage. And it's a, it's a, it's a real hoot for a lot of reasons. It was funny even then, but it got it gets funnier, and so if you can find that uh, the, that whole movie, there's a scene in that where these people are in this little tiny submarine wandering around in somebody's bloodstream, and they're trying to make it to the brain where they can destroy a brain tumor with laser beam. And somehow Raquel gets outside of the submarine, and she's attacked by a whole bunch of antibodies that recognize her as a foreign body and attack her and coat her and are squeezing her to death and they get her back into the ship and uh, it it's just, it's a hilarious scene from all the sorts of mid-20th century cis archetypes uh, as well as all of of the movie tropes that you can ever imagine definitely worth looking for if you aren't immediate if you're not a boomer like myself and aren't immediately flashing on the scene I'm talking about because hey it was memorable so I hope that answers at length and also with a couple of interesting digressions uh, that question let's go on to Carol I think we can deal with Carol's question a bit more briefly vitamin K and thick blood Uh, so Carol writes is vitamin K contraindicated for people diagnosed with thick blood and lupus? And this, Carol, is a common, common misconception. So we had talked a lot about vitamin K in the last few programs. First of all, I just want to differentiate vitamin K1 from vitamin K2. For your purposes, just to say that it is the vitamin K2 that directs the calcium out of the arteries. It is the vitamin K1 that is responsible for being a cofactor in blood clotting. And the way that certain anti-clotting agents, primarily warfarin or Coumadin, work is by interfering with that vitamin K-dependent enzyme. 
And so when a person has too much warfarin on board or too much Coumadin on board and they're they're at danger of hemorrhaging. And so we use vitamin K as an antidote because it reverses the partial poisoning that the warfarin had caused. However, vitamin K by itself does not cause increased clotting. It does not thicken the blood. And you can't like give someone a thrombosis with vitamin K. The body has, of course, a lot of protective mechanisms so when we're talking about oral vitamin K, you aren't going to get into trouble with that. The body will simply uh, adapt and not absorb what is not needed. So people with thickened blood for any reason, people with lupus anticoagulant syndrome, as long as they're not using warfarin as their therapy, should be able to eat vitamin K, which is present in a ton of leafy greens and therefore natural part of the diet and plenty of people eat nothing but greens and they don't get blood clots. So definitely evidence against the idea that vitamin K at any dose given orally is going to create a problem. And when you get into intravenous dosing, of course, it's a little bit different. So I'm going to riff on the antibody bit. And one of the reasons I waxed a little effusive on the subject of antibodies is because there's a secret weapon against COVID that has been out there now for months, but people just don't seem to know about it. And I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and one of the lecturers, who is a professor at UC Davis, was giving a talk about treatment and of uh, acute COVID and what the management uh, thing is. Spoiler alert, basically Paxlovid is the drug that works Paxlovid's what we're going to give you, and uh, we're having <laughs> a. We know it's a great drug nationally and at the federal level. Uh, they're having real difficulty distributing it properly, and the recent funding cuts to COVID may, in fact, interfere with the uh, purchase of more of it. And it is a really excellent treatment for severe COVID, and we need to buy it because it is absolutely the best thing we've got. But what about a thing that acts like globulin shot uh, to keep you from getting hepatitis A? What about something you could get as a shot that would attack the spike protein? And in fact, that exists. It's called Evosheld, E-V-U-S-H-E-L-D, and it has got an emergency use authorization. It's intended primarily for people who can't be vaccinated, such as people, organ donors, for example, uh, so organ recipients, uh, people who are on immune suppressive drugs where they're, they won't show an adequate vaccination response, or people who've had a bad allergic reaction or a severe adverse reaction to vaccination. And I have a few patients like that. And this agent is, as I said, a couple of monoclonal antibodies. They're, they're taxagevimab and silgavimab. Always you're going to see that M-A-B on the end of an antibody. That's our code so that we know what we're talking about. And the cool thing about this stuff is these were grown in a lab. They're purified antibody. And they go after the spike protein of the COVID virus, but they do it in a in different places, so they don't overlap. So, uh, and once, if one or the other of them are bound, they pretty much completely block the ability of that spike protein to attach to its target, the human ACE2 uh, receptor uh, and enzyme, which is also, by the way, a very important anti-inflammatory Agent. So if you can't, if the virus can't attach to that, it can't get into the cell, it can't hijack the machinery, and it can't reproduce. So big fail on the part of the virus under those circumstances. Now, the cool stuff, it lasts about 90 days in the body. It takes 90 days to be eliminated. So it can be given uh, by injections, and it isn't completely eliminated at 90 days. That's the half-life. So it it's cut in half at 90 days. And at, at the end of a year, it would be 25% the level it was before. So it hangs around for a long time and provides lasting uh, protection. So even though you have to get two different shots at the same time, it's a one-time event. It's, it's very 
it's a very legitimate thing to be thinking about if you fit into one of those high-risk groups or people who simply have too big of a reaction to want to risk getting boosted. Uh, it's. I want to talk to you about the studies that validated it. They used people who were over 60 years of age. Uh, well, sorry, they were the average age was 58, but anybody who was in the study had to have a risk factor. Those risk factors included being older than 60, having obesity, heart disease, congestive heart failure, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, chronic kidney disease, you know the list of all of the people. And these were all people who had not received any uh, COVID vaccine in the study, and they had about 5,000 subjects, and they did great. The risk reduction was 77% in terms of actually getting uh, symptomatic COVID between the administration and day uh, 183, so basically two half-lives out. So pretty darn good. Uh, Subsequently, they did another analysis uh, for another uh, six months, and they found that it was actually even a little better, more 83%, but the difference between 77 and 83, it's still a good benefit. Now, What are my side effects if I decide to do this? Well, injection pain. Uh, Yeah, duh. Headache, 1% greater than placebo. Fatigue, 1% greater than placebo. And cough, the same as placebo. There really is a very good reason to consider using this. It is available locally. I've given it to at least one patient. I know that that one went in, so... And it, uh, they went to the infusion center at the local hospital. It's available at both at the hospitals, both in Santa Cruz and Watsonville. And your doctor has to att- has to write the order and attest that you have one of these conditions. So it's not for everybody. And we do have a decent supply of it right now because adaptation is much more sluggish than was anticipated, and it's not entirely clear why that was. But it's certainly in intriguing to think about whether or not if we could get some more of this, we could expand the indications. Now, if you are at high risk and you didn't, that is to say over 50, that's high risk for this, and you did not have a bad reaction to any of your uh, vaccinations or your booster, you know, I'm not counting a bad reaction having to feel a little tired and sore for a day take a hot bath and get over it. But if you had more of a reaction than that, maybe you're thinking twice, maybe you're on the fence. If that doesn't sound like you, then I really want to encourage you to go ahead and do that. I think it's an extremely uh, important thing. So new findings explain lupus at a level that's never been understood before. A a key protein, uh, a toll-like receptor, is uh, turning out to be very, very important. So let's dive down into the science a little bit. This was uh, an international team of researchers, and they identified DNA mutations in a gene whose purpose is to sense viral RNA. And this uh, this was found to be a cause of autoimmune lupus. And it also further research, and I'll tell you that story in just a second, paves the way for the development of new treatments. So let's first of all define what we're talking about. Lupus is a chronic autoimmune disease. It causes inflammation in the organs and joints, sometimes called the great mimic, uh, along with syphilis and a few other things, because it can show up in so many different ways and be so hard to diagnose initially. It tends to affect movement. It can affect the skin, often causing a classic sort of butterfly pattern of red rash on the face. It causes extreme fatigue, and sometimes complications of this can be fatal. So it's affecting thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the United States. And a new study just came out literally today in Nature in which scientists carried out a whole genome sequencing on a little Spanish girl named Gabriela who got diagnosed with severe lupus when she was only seven years old. Now, that is very, very young. This often hits people, particularly women, uh, 
in their 20s. So for it to show up this early was a red flag that something special about this child. And we now have the tools to figure out what it is. So they decided to do a complete whole genome sequencing. And they found a single point mutation. That's just one uh, nucleotide shifting causing a change in the protein that's put on the product. In this case, it was the TLR gene, which is toll-like receptor 7. And then they they put that word out. And in China and in uh, the United States, in registries, they found several other cases of severe lupus where this gene was also mutated. So... They thought, well, this is a clue, but we have to prove it. So then using CRISPR, gene editing, they decided to put that mutation into mice, and the mice who were so treated went on to develop lupus. So it was good support that this was a causal thing. And the little girl was actually allowed to name the mutation, so she named it Kika. And uh, I like that. I like that she got to name her, her mutation. Uh, but maybe, maybe this is going to lead us to new drug therapy. There's only been one new treatment approved by the FDA for lupus in the last 60 years. So just for a few people, what good is that? Well, it turns out that we already knew that many people with lupus have signs of overactivity in the toll-like receptor 7 pathway. So by making a causal link, it, it opens the door to a plausibility for developing treatment. And so what does this do? Well, the TLR7 protein binds more readily than normal to guanosine. Guanosine is one of those nucleotides I just talked about. So it's more likely to glom onto it. This increases the sensitivity of any immune cell carrying it, priming it, just like, remember I was talking earlier about how the macrophages uh, prime the T-cells to start being willing to attack a particular antigen by waving it and a stimulus kind of in the air. And when the first immune naive T-cell comes along, it is essentially imprinted on that sequence. Well, this is relatively what's happening here. You're imprinting immune cells against normal healthy tissue, causing them to recognize it as foreign and mount an attack against it. And, you know, it's not all bad. You don't want to block this because other studies have shown that one of the risk factors for developing severe COVID-19 infection is another mutation that causes the TLR7 to become less active. So that's associated with a severe vulnerability to viral infections. So you need that to be right where it should be. But it also explains one of the mysteries about lupus, which is why lupus is about 10 times more frequent in females than in males. I've heard all kinds of suggestion. Well, maybe it has to do with the fact that females bear children and the children don't have the same DNA. Maybe it has to do with uh, stress. Maybe it has to do with fill in the blank. But it turns out the TLR7 is on the X chromosome. And so... Females have two copies of this TLR7, whereas males only have one copy. And in the course of the fact that since women have this duplicate X chromosome, usually one of them is actually uh, put into hibernation. It's It's called silencing. And the second copy of the silenced X chromosome is kind of crumpled up like the way you would crumple up an aluminum can and it can't be read. But sometimes that crumpling is incomplete. And so if you have that mutation and you're crumpling on your X chromosome uh, on, one of, on one of the, so it is incomplete. Now you've still got two copies. So you've got twice as much TLR7 protein around. And if you've got this mutation that causes you to attack guanosine, well, you're going to start attacking your own DNA. Just a, a brief segue here. Because of this double X chromosome and the mechanism of silencing, you have calico cats, right? The color gene is on, in those cats, there's a color gene on the X chromosome. And so if it's 
silenced, you get one color. If it's not silenced, you get the other. And you end up with the pattern in female cats that we call calico. Uh, Females in general are, in fact, chimeras. We have, uh, and sometimes you'll see that in skin, sometimes you'll see uh, see it in other organs. The silencing takes place very early in the process of development. So we have one, two, three-inch chunks of our adult body that correspond to one cell back when we were in the blastula stage when this silencing took place. And that has interesting implications for how certain diseases, both genetic and otherwise, manifest in women. And somewhere along the line, we're going to find the key to autoimmune disease. Right now, what we're finding is fragments of the key. However, now now the search is on. Lots of drugs out there that either didn't make it into production or... Uh, did make it into production that are used for something completely different that, oh, by the way, on the list of things they actually do, they suppress TLR7. So you can bet as soon as this gets published, which is today, people will start going through those banks, those data banks, looking for the looking for those co- those correlations, looking for drugs that also affect this and setting themselves up to test them. So this is really exciting. Uh, I think we are poised on uh, a real threshold. By the way, I mentioned that the TLR deficiency that makes people more likely to get COVID, that's a recessive gene. So what that means is that by definition, men with only one copy of the X chromosome are going to have that problem with a deficiency may also account for uh, a slight difference in, you know, suppose there's supposedly statistically women are better at fighting off viruses, and maybe it has something to do with this. One last email, this from Curtis. Curtis is uh, writing about a calcium score. So let's get into the details. Uh, Dear Dr. Don, I'm so grateful for your medical call-in program. I've learned so much from you over the years. I've been listening to your on-air radio program for many, many years. I remember listening to the Dr. Don show on KUSP over a decade ago. Yes, Curtis, uh, we're getting we're getting close to three decades uh, on the radio here. Uh, in any case, I'm a 70-year-old white male, Scottish, Norwegian, with a touch of the Irish, relatively good health commercial pilot, and sea captain licenses most of my life. And by the way, there's a picture of uh, Captain Curtis here uh, on a sailboat out uh, with the storm and the sunsets. Beautiful picture. So, And I will definitely say Curtis looks very well preserved. So let's continue. Uh, I've successfully managed chronic bronchitis with light to moderate allergic asthma since puberty. However, my blood pressure has been creeping up in recent years. I guess due to less physical exercise. And uh, today his blood pressure is 108 over 71. That's uh, really not high. But uh, his blood pressure has been higher uh, in the neighborhood of 175 over 80 sometimes in the recent past. And since it's going up and down like that, that means that Curtis is running out of nitric oxide. So when you see those kind of fluctuations, even the so-called white coat hypertension. What you really are seeing, Curtis, is a early sign of degradation of the endothelial cells. This is the cells that line the blood vessel, and one of the things they do when they're healthy is they make a compound called nitric oxide, which causes the blood vessels to vasodilate. And they're triggered to make that when the blood vessels constrict. And when do they constrict? When you blast out some adrenaline from your adrenal glands. However, that causes a, a short constriction, and then it actually triggers a big opening, part of the fight-or-flight response, mediated by nitric oxide. So if you can't do that because your enzymes are getting funky there in the endothelial cells, then what happens with adrenaline is that you get a spike in your blood pressure because you don't get that secondary vasodilation. You keep the epinephrine and adrenaline-induced constriction. And I've been trying to get a handle on my cholesterol and triglycerides. 
Curtis writes. Uh, they seem to keep be creeping up, too. Uh, about a year ago, I saw a documentary regarding the Silicon Valley computer engineer who basically invented CT scanners and how he started looking for a method for predicting heart attacks. This documentary presented a history of how the AMA did not want to approve his diagnostic method and his device, largely due to insurance companies lobbying the AMA against it at the time. There's a lot to that story. But what the documentary did was light my fire. As a one-time pre-med student, I'd never heard of CT scanning for calcium in the aorta as a diagnostic tool. So working with my GP doctor, I'm trying to control my cholesterol and blood pressure. I asked her about getting a calcium score. And last year, I had a CT scan for aortic calcium. He attached the report. The scan comments are a little concerning. I hope it's not too late for me to do something to reduce my risk factors. I confess in the last several years, I've been lazy regarding my overall health, coasting on my previous excellent health. I saw a lot of that in the last two years, Kurt. It's a whole lot of it. Uh, Several bouts of depression have set me back, and I've gained 15 pounds this last 12 months. But now I'm feeling better. I'm looking at 71 and want to go for at least another decade or two, and I still have things to do. So looking at Curtis's study, they used the indication of hyperlipidemia or elevated cholesterol and got it through his insurance. And what they found was a overall coronary calcium score of 313, so 313. And they found a... 100 square millimeter calcified pla- uh, plaque and overall in the coronary arteries. So that's where that comes from. This places the patient in the 72nd percentile with respect to age and sex and indicates above average risk for future cardiac events. Most of it, um, unfortunately for Curtis, is in the business end, the part that feeds the left ventricle. And so that's the area that has the most calcification. And calcium means plaque. If you have calcium in your coronary arteries, the calcium is gathering in the fatty plaque, which we can't directly visualize. So the idea here is that, well, we can. I shouldn't say we can't directly visualize it. Um, We have to give you an angiogram. In other words, inject dye into your blood vessel using a long, thin catheter inserted in the groin, and then uh, take a quick couple of uh, quick pictures, and then we can see the dye move through the heart very quickly, boom, boom, and it's gone, and we can see the shadow of the plaque where it narrows things. What we don't see, however, is whether that plaque is stable or uh, unstable, and if your lipids are high, odds are good that you're adding lipid to there. A couple of things that do that, being overweight, It's inflammatory, higher levels of insulin, also inflammatory. These cause uh, oxidative stress, which can come from infection, lack of sleep, uh, certain behaviors like drinking a lot of alcohol. All of these things create oxidative stress, and oxidative stress is going to make a real problem for your arteries. It's going to cause those arteries to be more likely to clog up with plaque. Some of that plaque will calcify, but the soft plaque that's in there that might rupture, that's what really worries me. So what are you going to do? You really do need, this is a situation where I really do want to see those lipids come down and I want to see anti-inflammatories. And one of the best ways to do that is statins. Now I always recommend a big dose of CoQ10 with your statin. Uh, And that's because statins interfere with your body's ability to make CoQ10, and you need CoQ10 in your mitochondria to keep your cells healthy. One of the things we've seen since statins were introduced is we've seen fewer heart attacks and more congestive heart failure. And I'm not saying that statins cause congestive heart failure, but I am saying, isn't that interesting? And what if depleting the body of CoQ10 is causing congestive heart failure in some individuals, wouldn't it be better to just replace the CoQ10 as we go and avoid even that possibility? It's not that expensive, and it definitely falls into the won't hurt, might help category, which tends to be my threshold when we're talking about nutritional agents. If 
you develop muscle pain or brain fog when you take a statin. You go off of it. You take high doses of CoQ10 for a month, and then you try again with a different statin. Or you can also use something called red yeast rice. Or This is the original statin. It's actually made by a fungus, and the drug companies stole the uh, molecule and patented it, and that's where all the statins come from. They're all sons of red yeast rice. Red yeast rice has a bunch of different statins in it, seems to cause less side effects, haven't seen any head-to-head studies proving that. That's a B minus C plus level uh, on a scale of A through F of how good that factoid that I just threw out is. However, it does lower cholesterol. And what we want is not only lower cholesterol, but we want lower oxidized cholesterol. Unfortunately, very hard to measure it. Actually, that's not true. It's not hard to measure. It's just not done by commercial labs. So it's difficult to find, and mostly your insurance, it's hard to get your insurance to pay for it. However, if a person has a high inflammatory marker like an HSCRP, it's fair to assume that they have uh, high levels of oxidative stress, high levels of inflammation, and therefore whatever small, dense lipid that they've got floating around in their bloodstream is more likely to be charged and therefore more likely to be contributing to their plaque burden. So where it all goes is, my friend, I think you do need to treat this. I think you need to lose that 15 pounds. And uh, that's doing all kinds of bad things in terms of your goals of healthy aging. So get back to fighting weight. And if uh, and ideally don't do that by being stupid. Go on the salmon and salad diet. Lots of lean meat and lots of vegetables. And, you know, forget about going crazy with, you know, I'm not saying I don't use keto in certain situations, primarily Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, things like that. But it's a hard diet to do well, and most people who try to do one on their own mess up. So paleo, fine. Salmon and salad, fine. Uh, Mediterranean diet, fine. All of these have lots and lots of validity. Cut back on the booze if you haven't already done that because of the oxidative stress. Yes, I know you're a sailor and a captain and all of that, but... Hey, it's a question of another beer now or losing some of that time with all of those things that you've got to do and all that sailing you want to do. So it's a pretty obvious choice. So I have a number of articles all about breakthroughs in cancer. So we're switching topics. And let's start with pancreatic cancer, one of the toughest nuts to crack we've got right now. Nowadays, it's rather routine for mammograms to be reviewed by a computer, essentially an AI program that looks for subtle signs, subtle contrast differences that the human eye can't identify, and then flags those areas for the radiologist to look more carefully at. Sometimes we bring people out back for magnification views under those circumstances. And mammograms are a screening test. They're uninvasive, relatively cheap, and they're done to find breast cancer early, And so it's a filter. When you have a filter, you basically want to, like when you go out to sea and you're fishing, you throw the net down. Some of what you find, you throw back. You don't keep everything. And you'd rather get more stuff and throw some of it out. So we'd rather have false positives than false negatives. That's what screening's about. Then when we get into diagnoses, once we've screened people out, then we do something which is flipped it. We want there, we want few false positives and no false negatives, ideally. So that's the order of operations when you're searching for disease. And if you think about it, it's pretty routine now. When people go to the emergency room, they get, with abdominal pain, they're almost certain to get an abdominal CT scan, unless it's pretty obviously a case of gastroenteritis. You know, they've got vomiting, they've got diarrhea, you're probably not going to get a CT scan unless you've got a fever and a white count. However, abdominal CT scans are now pretty routine. And this artificial intelligence tool that was developed by Cedars-Sinai's investigators accurately predicted who would develop pancreatic cancer based on what their CT scans looked like years, years prior to being diagnosed. This was just published, and it obviously could prevent death through early detection of one of the biggest nuts to crack, as I said, pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. It's the most common type of pancreatic cancer. It's the most deadly. 
and less than 10% of people diagnosed with this disease live more than five years after being diagnosed. But if you could find it early, you could increase survival rates by 50%. That would be a big win. But there's no early way to find it. I have uh, actually a case of someone with exactly that type of cancer who had a routine uh, CT scan, and there was something that tipped off uh, the people, and I don't know, I'm not a radiologist, so I don't know what it was. But in this case, it reviewed electronic medical records, found people who were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer within the last 15 years, who had also had CT scans within six to three months prior to their diagnoses. And these CT scans were all read as normal at the time they were taken, like those mammograms that looked normal to the human. So they identified about 36 patients who met all this criteria, and most of them had gone into the ER with abdominal pain and gotten their CT scans. So then they gave this to the AI and trained it to look by looking at those CT images and then comparing them from with images from 36 people who didn't develop the cancer. And the way this AI learning stuff goes, it's completely black box. We don't understand what the AI is picking up that we're not picking up. But whatever it is, it's 86% accurate in identifying people who would be who would eventually be found to have pancreatic cancer and those who would not. They think the model picked up on variations on the surface of the pancreas between people with cancer and healthy controls, some textural changes that could be the result of swelling or molecular changes, but it wasn't a mass. It wasn't something that the ordinary human eye could pick up. It was you know, like a lot of the stuff that my Photoshop does, you know, getting rid of noise. I don't know how it does that, but it does some sort of processing. It's It's sort of instead of getting rid of noise, in fact, you're probably magnifying the noise and looking carefully at the noise and decoding the noise. And this is, it's a real serious advance. So soon, I can imagine all CTs of the abdomen being overread. And if they flag, having people be brought back for a further evaluation, maybe by then we'll have some blood biomarkers or something that are highly specific so that if you can use your sensitive test to find people who might have it, then you can use your specific test to throw away the ones that you're net caught that don't have the marker in their blood. Something like that, a two-phase, uh, one-two punch to pancreatic cancer might be on the horizon. Well, what about if you've already got cancer? Well, one of the more common head and neck cancers, oral squamous cell carcinoma, um, often starts out quite innocently, a little white patch in the mouth or a small red bump that doesn't go away, easy to blow off. I didn't know this, but a third of Americans don't go to the dentist. Even you know, They just don't go. And uh, if you don't, dentists are really the only people who are likely to spot this. I mean, they're, they're definitely got a bird's eye view and they're definitely take, looking closely at everything. They're going to see those white patches. Um, the the if you get squamous cell carcinoma at the time of diagnosis, it's got a five-year survival of 66%. So smokers and drinkers are the like most likely to get it. People who uh, use chewing tobacco or smokeless tobacco are also high in the list. And it's highly, it's highly common in young men, uh, often associated with the human papillomavirus, the one that causes cervical cancer in women. So... Researchers at Boston University's Golden School of Dental Medicine uh, found a protein that seems to spur or limit a a tumor's development and spread. So this protein is uh, pretty intriguing. It's called lysine-specific demethylase, and it's normally not really very active in adults. It plays a critical role in embryological development, but it goes, it gets inappropriately upregulated. In other words, too many copies of the RNA are being made and you're getting too many copies of the enzyme. And we see that in many cancer tissues, head and neck, brain, esophagus, liver, and lung. And as the cancer gets worse and worse, the expression of the enzyme gets higher and higher. So these researchers, uh, decided that they were going to 
see if they could block this. So they restricted the enzyme. They used something. They First of all, they tried manipulating the genes so it was switched off. This is obviously happening in animals. Uh, or they used a drug called small molecular inhibitor. And uh, this disrupted the, L, uh, the LSD1, the lysine-specific dimethylase, uh, and effectively slowed the tumor growth. As they did that, as they inhibited the protein, they also saw a promotion of anti-tumor immunity. In other words, the T cells woke up and started fighting the cancer more, uh, more effectively. So one of the one of the things this does may be to turn off or somehow distract the normal immune recognition. So then they thought, well, what if we included an immune checkpoint inhibitor? And this is something that turns off the turning off that the cancer does on the immune system. And the three drugs together worked really well. So now we are thinking about possible uh, possible chemo very inventive and new combinations of agents that could make a real difference for people with head and neck cancer. And a few minutes ago, I mentioned keto when I was talking to the captain, and a keto molecule might be useful in preventing or and or treating colorectal cancer. Now, this is a molecule that's uh, called beta-hydroxybutyrate, and uh, our, the medical, uh, the recovering medical students out there and nurses and doctors will recognize that because that's one of the ketones that we look for in diabetics, uh, type 1 diabetics with diabetic ketoacidosis. So we've got hospital blood tests for this stuff. But the liver makes it when you aren't uh, getting any carbs. And when you're starving, it's made as a byproduct of breaking down fat in the liver. But mice, in this study, recently published in Nature, mice were fed uh, very low-carb, low high-fat ketogenic diets. And they were also given a chemical treatment that reliably triggers uh, colorectal cancer in experimental animals. So they had six groups of mice. The keto groups had 90% fat-to-carbs ratio. One used lard, the other used Crisco. Uh, The other diets included a uh, a Mediterranean-type diet, a a high-carbohydrate diet, a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet. And what they found was that the other diets seemed to promote the cancers, and the high-keto diets... Uh, reduced it. Now, one rec- one reason for this probably has to do with the beta-hydroxybutyrate that is generated in the liver. The researchers finally were able to link what that the production of new cells, in other words, the epithelial growth rate, was slowed by the beta-hydroxybutyrate. And this is protective when uh, in the development of colon cancer, it makes sense that rapidly growing cells, cancer cells, you slow down the growth, gives the immune system a chance to, to catch up and go after those cells. And they're saying that it was triggered by low, it, and they're, they're saying that uh, these low-carb keto diets helped. Now, that's interesting to me because that's part of functional medicine advice about cancer is to lower your simple carbohydrates that vegetables are okay, but you want to stay you want to stay low starch across the board because you don't want there to be available carbohydrate to the cancer. Cancers do better with sugar than they do with fat. They lose the ability to digest fat, so that may be another factor in why these keto animals did so well. You know what else makes car, uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, by the way? Well... Bacteria, or specifically probiotic-type bacteria that are fed fiber. And we've known for a century or more that a high-fiber diet is inversely associated with the incidence of colon cancer. So here's two reasons why. You know where else you can get beta-hydroxybutyrate? You can get it from ghee, clarified butter, very commonly taken in India. And so... 
just even eating ghee is a signal to slow down the rapid speed of growth of polyps, slow down those rapidly uh, producing cells that you probably don't want reproducing anyway. And they documented that by giving these uh, animals uh, just beta-hydroxybutyrate in their water, and it worked. They got the same kind of suppression, and uh, they've gone on and found exactly what the name of the receptor is and how it regulates the slow-growth gene. But I won't get into the weeds here because I think it's clear. What we eat makes a difference. Of course, we knew that. But more and more data is showing that maybe fats are not bad for us, at least uh, at least under certain circumstances. Of course, nothing is all good. And I do recommend veg- uh, diets that are high in vegetables. But I also recommend a diet that is medium to high in healthy fats. And if you'd like to know more about that, you could email me or you could call in next week. And we'll have a uh, consultation or a a discussion about what exactly I'm talking about. We've got just a minute. And so I'll give you one quick study that came out. This was a paper that came out a couple of, I guess it came out back in March. And it looked at somatic mutation rates uh, and scaling across lifespan across mammals. So basically... uh, We've thought that maybe your lifespan had something to do with how many uh, heartbeats you had. We've been interested in cancer and aging across all of the mammals. And what these uh, group did is they looked at whole genome sequencing of uh, 56, uh, 56 individuals across 16 mammalian species. And they looked at mutation rates. In these different species, there was about a 30-fold difference in lifespan and a 40,000-fold difference in body mass. But by the end of the lifespan, the number of mutations in the body were actually very similar. So if you have 40,000 more pounds, but you end up with only three, three times more mutations, something's up. And it's as if the rate that we develop mutations in our bodies is tied to our lifespan. And humans having one of the longer lifespans, actually accumulate mutations much, much more slowly than dogs. But by the end of the 15 years that a dog might live, if it's lucky, and the end of the 83 years that a human might live, what we see is the same number of somatic mutations. What's up with that? Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.